Welcome to Hiawatha Church. I'm on, right? <laughs> um, I think I am. All right, great. Uh, my name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome to our church, as uh, Spencer and Peter have been saying this morning. Glad you are with us. If you're just visiting for the first time, uh, welcome especially to you. Uh, we are, are glad to have you guys. Um, we right now are in a series, a sermon series at our church called Big Questions that will take us through Labor Day. It's a summer series for us. We uh, finished up a, a series in, uh, in the spring, and, and we're going to do some big questions now for the summer that are questions that the church is giving us as pastors and overseers and elders of this church to kind of filter and preach as, as best as we can, answer as best as we can, uh, kind of via a sermon. So not all these questions we're getting, they're all great questions, by the way, so all of, all of you that have given questions, thank you, and, and please keep them coming. I talked to my wife the other day, and she was saying she had one too, so I told her to send it in, and because uh, <laughs> I didn't, yeah, well, I don't know why I just didn't talk to you, yeah, I know, it's terrible. Well, let's get some counseling later for that one, but um, no. But she, she's going to send one in. So, so keep sending them in because they really are great. And we're, we're going to do our best to get back to you guys, even if they're not maybe preachable questions. So by that just meaning there's not really a sermon in it so much. It's kind of a, a quicker uh, answer, like an I don't know maybe. <laughs> there's your answer. We don't know. Uh, but, but we do want to get back to you. So uh, unless they're anonymous, of course, but if you have your name attached to it, we'll at least email you back or talk to you. Uh, these are all questions we're getting, and uh, today's question, we'll just dive right in, uh, is can you preach, we've got a question that says, just can you preach a sermon on the life of David? Um, and this is not just any David, so all you Davids in the room can relax. It's not about you, uh, it's, it's going to be about, uh, as Peter was talking about a second ago, the David of the Bible, King David, uh, that we know about through the Psalms, and, and especially narratively through the books of First and Second Samuel in the Old Testament. So, uh, it's a great question because we actually, we haven't preached out of these two books, First and Second Samuel, for quite some time as a church, and really hardly at all during our 12 years uh, together as, as a church. And so um, it's actually on our short list of books to make into a sermon series maybe sometime in the next few years or so, so that might be happening. Uh, it's, I, I'd like to see that happen, so we'll see. Um, it's not next or anything, but hopefully the next few years uh, to make a series out of it. I think that'd be really great for us as, as a community. But, but for today... On light of the question, uh, can you preach a sermon on the life of David? The answer is yes, we can. Uh, that's, and so here we go. We're going to do that today. Another added big question, though, to kind of attach to this underneath it is, what makes David so special biblically? If, if you don't know anything about the Bible, uh, know that he is a special character. He's definitely an A-list character in terms of how we understand characters and, and events and so forth in the Bible. There's kind of A-list events, A-list characters, and then kind of B-list and so forth. David is one of those A-list guys and so, um, what makes him so special? Why does Jesus talk about him? Why does Jesus call himself his son? Why is he such a, a main character in the Psalms, in that wisdom section of the, of the Old Testament? Why is he such a, such a main player in that? And uh, why does David make promises to him? He doesn't do that to everybody in the Bible. So, uh, how, how does that all fit together is going to kind of be a, a sub-question, more specific one, I guess, to uh, today's big question. So, a couple of things on David to begin. Uh, a lot of you guys, I know he's a new character uh, for you, um, but also by a way of reminder, David is, um, David is, and also what's been going on in the book of 1 Samuel. So today, I'll, I'll get to today's passage in a second. We're going to look at 1 Samuel 24. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles in the meantime here, feel free, or your phone apps. I'll get to that in just a second. But um, David is one of the first kings of Israel in the Old Testament, preceded only by King Saul. We'll talk about Saul a little bit today as well in 1 Samuel 24. Um, Peter mentioned this a second ago too, but David is known for, for slaying Goliath, the nine-foot-tall giant, the Philistine uh, warrior and champion. 
Uh, he lived around 1000 BC and wrote a lot of the Psalms as well. So if you know a bit about the Psalms in the Old Testament, which are kind of like prophetic songs, uh, he wrote most of those, about half of them, and then more of them are about him, even though he didn't write them, not the main author of them. So basically, he is the, like, the substance of the book of Psalms and also the main author of them as well. Uh, but at this juncture in Israel's history, Israel as a people are sinning against God by asking for a king as opposed to viewing God as, as their king or as their own king. And God actually allows them to, it's kind of weird, he allows them to choose anyway, I think as a way to kind of let them go to see the consequences of choosing a king on their timeline in their own way. And so they choose Saul. There's a lot that goes into that, which is kind of outside the bounds of what we want to do today, so I won't go into it. But they choose Saul, but then God subverts them by choosing his own king, David, who ends up supplanting Saul, first by fighting battles that Saul couldn't fight, like Goliath and other battles against the Philistines, who are kind of like the main enemy of Israel during this time, then by being given the throne outright after Saul dies. And so it's kind of a slow but intentional God-driven ascent uh, to, to the throne. So the people choose Saul, failure. God chooses David, uh, success. So how to read David into the biblical storyline? It kind of gets to the question a little bit in terms of why he's so special, but we'll talk more about it today too through the lens of 1 Samuel 24. So tons to say. But David is essentially a king who genealogically and otherwise points us ahead to Jesus Christ, his descendant. In the New Testament, Jesus is called the son of David. It's essentially his name. And he ends up fulfilling the promises God made to David, most notably the promise that his throne would last forever, which was a nod to the resurrection, but also fulfilling the very life of David as well. It's one of the more important things to understand about David is that Jesus fulfills the very life of David on multiple fronts. And so remember, when we talk about genealogical connection in the Bible, the way the Bible does, we talk about bloodline relationship, but also about resemblance, like we would today. Talk about genealogy today, like think about your grandparents, your great-grandparents or something, you do family tree stuff or whatever. You talk about bloodline relationship, you talk about being a descendant of someone, but you might also talk about being, you know, like someone who resembles someone else. Like if, if your grandfather or grandmother kind of resemble you and vice versa, you talk about that. You look for resemblance and you see it in personality or maybe looks. And so David, in that way, resembles Jesus Christ and vice versa. But Jesus is the better David, too. So why this passage particularly, uh, 1 Samuel 24, it's a pat, we could have picked almost anything, but I think it's a passage from earlier in the David narratives that foreshadows what really much of his life would look like, both in terms of large-scale events, but also some of his main characteristics as a man and king, which in turn tells us a lot about the man and king Jesus Christ was and is today. And so just get ready to connect the two as we read together. So the immediate context here in 1 Samuel 24, Saul is king. Uh, David just slayed Goliath and is serving now as this functional captain figure for Saul. So, he start, so he's fighting Saul's battles for him. It's kind of his, his number two, essentially. And so Saul is starting to get jealous of David because David's being praised by the people and, and credited with these victories more than Saul is as king. And so Saul turns on David and is starting to chase him now in order to kill him. So he's jealous, he's chasing David, and he wants to kill him. So in that context, we pick up in verse 1, and we'll, uh, we'll read now uh, the whole chapter. So follow along on screen if you want, or your Bibles. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. 
Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men from, uh, for, for in the front of wild goats' rocks. Then he came to the shepherds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have now seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against the Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As a proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you. And see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. All right. So, um, the big question then, or another one, I guess, today that that relates to the ones we talked about before is essentially, what does this story mean? Why is this in the Bible? How does this help kind of highlight the characteristics of David and help tell the story of David, but in as much as it tells us the story of Christ? And so, as we go back to how we started today, we'll start with that. So, what does this mean? We go back with that lens and essentially say here at the outset, it means, the story means to give us whispers of the gospel event, which means Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection three days later. That's why this story is here. And again, we've already talked a little bit about this this morning, but uh, stories like this have what we call a divine aspect to them. 
Some of the early Christians, uh, like Irenaeus is a good example of this in the second century, but a lot of them talked this way. They talked about how the Bible has a human side to it and a divine side to it, just like Jesus himself has that. He is fully human, and he's fully God or fully divine. And so the Bible is, being God's word, similar, fully divine in aspects and also uh, fully human, meaning it speaks to our human lives, and that song we just sang is a good, is a good demonstration of that. David's life might reflect ours somehow, but it also maybe especially speaks to Jesus' life ahead of time, and that is the divine side of biblical stories like this. And so we start to see this today in today's passage. We kind of back, I'm going to back up here a little bit and, and widen out for a second before we really get into 1 Samuel 24, but we start to see this divine principle play out when we realize that many of David's songs that he wrote in the Bible, many of, him, many of his psalms, were written specifically in this type of, of instance, when he was on the run from Saul, like, again, like in today's passages. A lot of the psalms he wrote are, are titled, and I have a couple here, just as, uh, as an example, like in Psalm 50, 57 and, and 142, they begin a maskil or a poem of David when he was in the cave. And so a lot of these psalms begin, begin right uh, in, in this instance in the story, and they're written actually when he's in the cave or when he's on the run from Saul or friends or close associates or even family, all for unjust reasons. And they contain language like, deliver me from my persecutors and my souls in the midst of lions. David says kind of poetically like that in, in Psalms, like Psalm 57 and 142. So, so we start to see this then when we realize a lot of David's Psalms were written in a, this kind of mournful posture. And maybe you've, you've seen that before, you noted that or asked that. Why are a lot of the Psalms just kind of so sad? and mournful? Why, why are they like psalms that cry out? Why, why are they pleading for God to deliver, uh, and sometimes they end on a very dark note without a lot of answer? Why are they like that? And, and one answer is because a lot of them are written by David when he's in these very dark places, being rejected by people who used to love him. Even later in the story, he's rejected by his own sons who want the throne and want to take it from him. And so his own people are rejecting him, and he kind of writes out of that experience. So it's significant then, fast-forwarding to Jesus, when Jesus talks in the New Testament, when he aligns himself with David in the New Testament, one of the biggest connections he makes is between David's sufferings and his suffering. He likens himself to David when he's on the run from his persecutors and chasers at one point, and he says on the cross, very specifically in Psalm 22:1, which David wrote, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so Jesus literally shouts David's sufferings from his own suffering. And so the connection there is made kind of with words, but also by actions. The, the words that Jesus uses to shout when he's suffering are David's words. David was a suffering king, a rejected king, just like Jesus was a suffering king, a rejected king. And we know this. And so what, what makes Jesus the son of David the most then is the fact that, that they suffer. It's not the fact that they're both shepherds, though that's important. It's not the fact that they're both from the tribe of Judah or giant slayers or that both are anointed king twice, though all of that's important. It's not the fact that they're both kings who act like priests sometimes, though all that's significant as well. But the most significant connection Jesus makes with the help of the Psalms is that they're both rejected kings who suffer deeply. If you're brand new to the idea of David, just mark that in your mind, mark that in your Bible, mark that in your phone app, is David is a suffering, a warrior king, 
a king who fights more and kind of better than all the kings who would come after him, and Saul who came before him, but he is a rejected, suffering king. That is the most important thing to know about David because it's the most important thing to know about Jesus, who is his son. You actually get a, you get a sense, too, for how all this is a part of God's plan in both stories, in David's story and in Jesus' story, but you get a sense for it in, in 1 Samuel 24 when it's kind of this ridiculous story where Saul just happens to go into the cave, this one cave, to go to the bathroom, and David just happens to be there in that cave. And it makes you kind of, by way of literary device, ask, could this really just happen? Is this really just coincidence? And of course, the answer is no. God was orchestrating this whole thing, orchestrating David's time in the cave to bring about good. David suffering, David being chased, David being pushed into this cave, not like the king that God had identified him as, not being treated that way, but being treated unjustly. Uh, like that, God used it to bring about good. It's the same with Jesus. It's the same with Christ. When we look at the cross, we see his terrible suffering, but we also see sin losing its grip on sinners, like Saul was losing his grip on his own kingly reign. This is when the tides turn. And so when we, when we see that, when we see God intend evil for good, like Joseph says in Genesis 50, 20, when he intends evil for good, when he intends cave dwelling or suffering for good, it's the same with Christ. When we look at the cross, we see terrible suffering, but we also see sin starting to lose its grip on sinners, all in the plan of God. Sinners like us, just like Saul was losing his grip on his own kingly reign. This is when the tides turn. This is when things all shift around. This is when it's not really clear that God's working in, in, in the earlier parts of the story, but then we start to see why God has an, an, an intentional plan to bring about good, to bring about redemption, to bring about salvation, to bring about his own purposes. And the story's not over. It continues with, with this statement, beginning in the last paragraph in chapter 24. Afterwards, David arose and went out of the cave. And Jesus, again, to connect us with him just outright, we'll come back and talk about this, but Jesus did this in a way too, right? But it wasn't just a cave, it was a cave-like tomb. The Old Testament is full of images and stories and events like this. And, and I'll just give a quick survey here, but there's many more. But stories that, that basically encompass a savior figure or a king or a prophet that is thrown into something, like, and I have just a list here, but thrown into a well or into a sea or into the belly of a fish or into a fiery furnace or into a lion's den or, in David's case, thrown into a cave only to come back up out of those things exalted, maybe at the right hand of the king, like in Joseph's case, and able, able to save people who are suffering from famine or, or coming up out of the belly of the fish as a prophet with good news for the Ninevites. Or coming up out of the fiery furnace, or out of the, the lion's den, or out of the sea, saved. Or just alive, when they shouldn't be. They're all connected. All of these are functional resurrection stories. And when, when Jesus says in Luke 24, in the New Testament, it's written in the Old Testament that I should rise from the dead. It's written in the Old Testament that on the third day, the Christ, or himself, should rise from the dead. When he says that, this is in part, these types of stories, this is in part what he's thinking. He's thinking of David. When he came up out of the cave, he was raised from the dead, functionally, just like he would come up out of the cave tomb later, but this time truly from a state of death 
not from a state of kind of uh, uh, death imagery. David was chased and persecuted into the cave, suffering, crying out to God. Then he rose up out of it, exalted over his enemies. And so here's what we should feel like. When we read, uh, and we'll talk about implications this has here in just a second for us, but, but I wanted to take this kind of angle on it first so we can understand the, the metaphor, the, the allegory, the symbol here, that David in this way is an ancestor of Jesus. Not just that he happens to be a great, 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 great grandfather, but he is by way of resemblance, he is Jesus-like. He did Jesus-like things. He was humbled, chased, rejected by his own people, the Jews, only to come up out in this exalted, kingly, like Saul says, I know you'll be king now because you went through this, this experience. I know you'll be king now because you treated me this way. I know that God has a plan for your kingship on the heels of his uh, typical resurrection. But here's what we should feel when we read this in part. We come across stories like this in that list I showed you before, which is just a short list, by the way, just an example. All these things are connected. But when we come across a story like this, especially with David, when we read this, we should in part think, God must really care about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He must really care deeply about it. Because it didn't just happen, it was predicted. And it wasn't just predicted, it was typified and imaged and foreshadowed. And it wasn't just typified and imaged and foreshadowed, it was written down that way. So that when Jesus says, I'm the son of David, we'd be able to make these connections. When Jesus says, the Old Testament predicts my resurrection, all over the place, we can look to stories like this and see this is exactly what, this is exactly what it means. This is exactly what it's here for. To show that in this way, God would send a son. God would send another David to reign, to resurrect, and to be kind to his enemies. And so a time would come, this is, this is what the Old Testament is looking to and yearning for, for light to burst in from darkness, for death to be overcome. These are the types of promises that are being just whispered. So I say whisper here earlier because it's not totally clear. It's a, it's a subtle hint or a, like that song says, a mystery that later will be solved. When we ask the question, why are these stories here? It doesn't say, Right? This doesn't happen, and then Samuel's writing this and saying, well, here's the lesson, guys. You know, when, whenever you are chased by a king into a, a cave, be sure to cut off the corner of their robe so you can show it to them, you know, when you, when you come out of, the, out of the cave. Like, that's, that's ridiculous, right? That's not, that's not, that's not the point or, or the moral or the lesson. It doesn't say. And so when the rest of the Bible is used to interpret these things, we see that Jesus himself looks to them as resurrection-type proofs or death and resurrection type proofs. And so he speaks on Easter morning to those two disciples in Luke 24 and says, look where I am. And not just where I am, look where my death is all over the Old Testament. And look where my resurrection is all over the Old Testament as well. All right, with that stage set though, he, and we talk about this um, as, again, backdrop but also implications. So the question is, what does this story mean? It means to give us whispers of the gospel event, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but it goes much further than that as well. It's much more personal than that. And so it also means to give us whispers of gospel implications for our lives. So one thing yeah, you, you may have noticed in this story, if you didn't, that's okay, 
But just um, think about this when you look at the life of David. And this is why I want to look at this passage today, because what you're seeing him do here to Saul is something he does over and over and over again to his enemies. Not people that like him. It's actually the people that like, are on his, on his side or his team. They kind of butt heads a lot. But his enemies, he does this stuff over and over again in his life. And that is express almost inexplicable, kind, inexplicable kindness. Did you guys notice that? Like David, and actually Saul calls himself the, his, his enemy. So Saul's saying, I realize I'm not like on your good side right now. Like I'm wanting to kill you. You know, and David shows him this kindness, and then Saul says, who does that? Who, when they find his enemy, spares him and doesn't kill him? And the answer is no one except, except David. So, so one thing you may have noticed is this almost inexplicable kindness that David shows Saul in this story. He's in place to kill him. Uh, just to remind you again, if it's the first time you heard this story, his associates and friends actually think he should kill him. Remember that? So, they, so they're saying, and we didn't read this part earlier in 1 Samuel, but it said, this is what God meant when he said, at a later date, I'm going to give him into your hands, and at that point, you should do what seems right to you. God, of course, knowing it's going to happen. But they said, this is what God meant. This is your opportunity as he's going to the bathroom relieving himself in the cave to, like, you know, slip in behind him and, like, kill him. Instead, he cuts off a corner of his robe so that later he can, and even that he feels kind of guilty about, but later he holds up the, the robe and says, look, I, this is how close I was to you in the cave. And so it's proof to Saul of his kindness. It's proof of his forgiveness. It's proof of being kind to an enemy. That's what the, the, corner, the corner was. So disagrees with his, with his friends and associates, takes his own, his own route, and, um, and expresses that kindness. I, on one level, this, um, this reminded me of Jesus' disciples. I don't know if you guys remember the story or not. Uh, in Luke 9, I forget the verse, but in Luke 9, there's this instance where Jesus goes into a Samaritan village. You guys remember this? And he's rejected by all, all the people there, and they're walking out. And, and a couple of the disciples say, Jesus, if, if you want me to, or if you want us to, we can call down fire from heaven and consume them. Do, do you want me to, like, I can do that for you if you, do you want us to do that on the way out? You guys remember this story? Anybody? A couple nods. It, it's, it's, it's humorous. It's ridiculous. You know, but they're saying, Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven for you and just consume them all? You know, and, and it says right after that, Jesus says, or it says about Jesus, he rebuked them. Like, no. You know, and they kind of went on. But it's just, it's, it's humorous. It reminds me of how, in that instance, Jesus' associates, like David's, have this, this particular thought about Jesus' enemies. We'll just destroy them. But Jesus says no, and he rejects them. Or maybe when Jesus is in Gethsemane, and how the priest's servant there with a band of soldiers, they're there to arrest Jesus, and Peter cuts the guy's ear off, basically saying, come on, Jesus, let's destroy them all. We've got them. They all came to us. Now just snap your fingers and speak and just lay them bare. But Jesus says, no, I'm not going to do that, but I will heal them. You know, so, so there are the, these instances in Jesus' stories, well, as the, the second and better true David, who his associates are saying, we, we know how this should go. We know how this should work. You should destroy your enemies. And in one sense, Jesus does do that. He's a warrior king. But in another sense, he's incredibly patient and kind and just good, and, and he's inexplicable in, in, in how it's like his posture towards people who reject him. 
So on a broader scale, then as we bring kind of ourselves into this, and as you look at the whole of the gospel accounts in the New Testament, this is precisely Jesus' posture towards us. This is exactly how he thinks of us. This is exactly what he's done for us. His enemies were his enemies. And so, so the good news is, it's not good news if we don't think that we're God's enemies because then it's a story out here that doesn't relate to us. Oh, that's kind of cool. I don't know if I could do that, could learn something from that. Or is it, no, that's me. I am the enemy of God. I am the enemy of the Son of God. I'm like Saul in this story. I'm the God-hater. I, like Saul to David, am threatened by God's kingly rule. And I think that, that I deserve to rule in my own life in a very Saul-like way, full of hate and sin, murderous intent, anything we can do to make a name for ourselves, right? But, but the gospel is God sends his own son, the true king, to die in our place, to be buried in a cave, to carry our sins far away, and then to rise again for us. And here's what I mean by gospel implication. David wins Saul over with his kindness. Did you see Saul's response? It's not just that David was kind. David wins him over completely. Hook, line, and sinker. Just completely. He's totally kind of bought back from his hatred. He's bought back from his treatment of his mistreatment of David, this kind of chosen by God king. Just this guy that he formerly, this boy, he formerly cared for. He's bought back by his kindness. Let me read these few verses again to remind you. As soon as David finished speaking his words to Saul, held up the cloth and all that, Saul realizes what's going on. Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I. For you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? Implied answer, no. So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. All right. Here's what this means. Jesus is more righteous than us, for he has repaid us good, whereas we have repaid God evil. And he has declared to us through his death and resurrection, because he died for us in our place, he declared to us through that how he has dealt with us, that he intended good for us and not harm. Like David before him, Jesus wants us to know this. It's, it's kind of like even though at first David's like, I don't even know about the cloth thing, but it, after that, he wanted Saul to know what happened. It's exactly what Jesus wants. He wants us to know what the cross meant. He wants us to know how kind he was to us through his death and resurrection. He wants us to know that even though we were his enemy, he let us go away safe by dying in our place. He intends us to know like David intended Saul to know. And so because of all that, he's been exalted to the highest place, King of kings, Lord of lords, and his kindness leads us to repentance, just like David's kindness led Saul to that same kind of repentance. God's love changes us. God's gospel, the good news, recreates us. It wins us back from our sin, back from how we perceive ourselves wrongly, how we perceive God wrongly, from 
being kings of our own life. Our propensity to crown ourselves king, this is why Saul is such a great character because he's a picture of us. We self-deify. We sit on the thrones of our own life. We, we are threatened by God's kingly rule. We don't like to be told, do something. Our culture says the same thing, right? And so it's this, this terrible mix of that. Our heart mixed with culture. It's just the world's message. Be your own God. Just do what you want. Don't let anybody ever tell you you're wrong. But what, what, what Christ's kindness wins us back from is not just this vague notion of sin, but our propensity to crown ourselves king of our lives. So we're not threatened by his rule, but we actually want it. And that's the big question. I'll, I'll just leave this here and kind of let it hang for a bit. I'll, I have a few more things to say, but this is the big question that this, this passage actually gets at in, in a way that few other places do in the entire Bible. This is the point. And this is actually, this might bother some of you too, and if it does, that's okay actually. This might disturb you because this, what this says is it's not just enough that you know the information of the gospel. It's not just enough that you know that Jesus died for your sins and that he rose again. That's good, of course. It, it starts with knowledge. But until we let that win us over, change our hearts, is it for you? Is it an idea or is it personal? Are you in this, are you like Saul, or, or is it just those really bad people you know that need to be saved like, like Saul? I mean, th that makes a world of difference. Have you been won over? I mean, until this happens, we're not, we're not really Christians. And I'm not, I'm not saying that if we struggle with this and all of a sudden we've lost our salvation or anything. I'm not saying that. But, um, but until, the, until this Saul-like experience, what happened to Saul here, when David came out of that cave, when he saw the cloth, until that happens right here in our heart, we're just people who acknowledge a story that has nothing to do with us. That's really, that's it. Again, maybe it's an okay starting point that we acknowledge the facts, we acknowledge what God is like, but have you been won over? Have you wept over your sin and wept in joy over the love that God has showed you? You right now in this very room. Because here's the truth. Today, through the lens of 1 Samuel 24, Jesus intends us all to know that he died and that he was raised for us. And that he could have killed us and he could have judged us for our sin, but instead, he took that judgment and bore it. And bore the ridicule, bore the hatred, bore the torture, bore the hell for us on that cross in love. And like David with Saul's cloth in hand, Jesus holds up his own scars and says, look at how much I loved you. That's the new cloth. This is proof. My scars, the, the, the hole in my side, the, the nail holes in my hand, the Thomas after the resurrection when he's showing the disciples his scars. He's doing a lot of things there, but in part he's saying, look, Proof of how much I loved you. Proof of how I could have made you liable for your sin, but instead I took it. I bore it. I drank it down to the dregs for you. I was baptized into hell and into the earth, into the cave tomb and back for you. I took it all on because, because I love you.
And notice it's not here. We talk about life change. And there is something to say about, you think about this on the horizontal level. A gentle answer turns away wrath, the Proverbs say. You know, you think about, maybe some of you have seen this interpersonally, you think about how forgiveness and kindness can win someone over. There's something to that. But notice here, we think about life change. Notice how it's not the law or commandments that makes Saul a better, more humble person. Right? What changes Saul's heart here? Is it the commandments? Is it the law? Is it the Ten Commandments? Is it treat others with respect, signed God? You know, like a, a letter from heaven into the hand of Saul. Is that what actually works? Is it the, is it the, the stone-cold tablets of the Ten Laws that, that Moses brought down from, from Sinai to give the people of... Is, is it that? It's clearly grace, Right? Commandments will never change your heart and make you a better person. The law will never make you a better person. If you want to respect people more and treat people with more dignity and love, it will not be because someone tells you to do it more. The the law says treat people with respect and honor perfectly or be damned. The gospel says God treated you in a way you didn't deserve. You, his enemies, he died for. He showed kindness to you. And when we actually, are like Saul, are changed by that, kindness flows like a river from our heart. It just starts to become a byproduct of the fact that we've been shown kindness when we didn't deserve it. But clearly here, in the Old Testament, if you know about these things, covenants in the Bible, then it's in a covenant of law. This is like when the law was kind of ruling. And yet here, David's this picture of how this, this king, this savior figure would come in apart from the law. Not to give the law to people to make them better, but to work aside from the law and to give grace and in that way to change lives and save people. This is a huge point, the, the, the narratives of David that I wish we had hours longer to talk about this, like in a class setting or something, but David is remarkably distanced from the law in the Old Testament. He's not a quoter of it. You read his psalms, he talks about how God actually doesn't want sacrifice, he wants a broken heart, like in Psalm 51, we sang from that earlier today. But here as well, there's a better and new way to save, not by the Ten Commandments, not by doing, not by your own morality and sense of goodness, but by someone who's not you and me, being buried in a cave and resurrecting himself, and and in that way showing kindness to enemies who don't deserve it. grace. The grace of a king. This is, what, this is what the book is saying to us. He loves us. His scars show it. And, and it's an invitation to bend the knee to his reign, guys. This, this is, um, I was thinking last week how sometimes as Christians we, we try to defend the truth, and that's good. We argue for why the Bible's true and how it's, it's, there's reasonable evidence to believe it's God's word and that Jesus is alive and all of that. And then there are times just to say that, guess what? Jesus is the king. Like, you have a king. Uh, whether you realize it or not, you have a king. Whether you like it or not, you have a king. Whether you believe in him or not, you have a king. Just like you might hate the president, he's still your president. 
on a greater level. God is king. And Philippians 2 says, quoting from the Old Testament, every knee will bow. And so it's an invitation to bend the knee and worship this kind of king. Because, because Jesus is a king based on the power of his resurrection. Just like David kind of came out of that cave in a resurrection-like way, and then he was declared by Saul, you are going to be king. Jesus is king based on the power of an indestructible life, the Bible says. The power of a, of a I will never die again life. Life for all of us, sinners, those prone to die. All of us will die, right? He's giving us his body. He's giving us his blood. He's giving us hope for a newly created earth. He's giving us himself. And he says, in that way, I'm king. And so it's good to bend the knee to him. It's good to want that type of rule. But this is what Christians do. And so it's an invitation to those of you who are not Christians yet to believe that Jesus died for your sins and to make him king of your life. And like Saul, loosen the grip of your own kingly rule or in your life. Loosen that and herald him king, the one who's died for you and who fights your battles. And those who have already done it, to keep doing that and to display this type of enemy love towards others in your life this week so that it's by our actions and words that will help make this Jesus more and more and more and more famous. In all this, believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Thanks for the gospel, uh, God, embedded mysteriously and symbolically and allegorically, uh, deep within the, the kind of the recesses and, and corners of Old Testament narrative like this. Uh, Father, it's all about you. All these things are about Jesus, and you care deeply about your son. You care deeply about the resurrection. You care deeply about your son's resurrection, and you care deeply about slain death for us. Those are loud and clear uh, when we see these passages in a way that the Bible itself does, in a way that Jesus himself reads them. And so, God, help us to understand Help us to see your love and grace and compassion and to be won over. Not just understand them, but, but have we, like Saul, been moved by kind, the kindness of God? Have we truly received it in our life? Maybe we haven't. Maybe we thought we have. But maybe we never actually have. We've never actually received it into our life and seen ourselves as the enemy of God who has shown friendship and kindness through Jesus who came to die for us. So, or we have, and this is a reminder, or we never have, and we are for the first. Whatever the case, God, um, this is how your kingdom is spreading, the proclamation of this gospel, the growth of the church. Um, Father, you're restoring your reign in the world. And it's a good reign. It's full of mercy and grace, not built on law, but built on the grace of God forever and ever and ever. Help us to respond in song and to respond by looking for ways this week to worship and to show types of enemy love to people in our lives, uh, in the church and outside, to express this in deed form in as much as we preach it to the masses. In Christ we pray. Amen.